This is trombonist Marshall Jilks, and you're listening to Behind the Note Podcast with Christopher Davis. You're listening to Behind the Note Podcast, brought to you by a musician for musicians. Here, you will get advice toward a successful music career. This show is made to educate, inspire, motivate, and empower. Now, here is your host, Chris Davis. Hello, welcome to Behind the Note Podcast. This is episode number 44. Today, we're going to talk about a career as a composer. That's something we have not addressed yet, and we have the perfect guest to do that because... Every day, this is his life. He's based in Los Angeles, California. He has worked with many people such as Dion Warwick, Josh Stone, Mary J. Blige, Disney Corporation, Oprah Renfrey, the Tony Awards. The list goes on and on. Too many to name right now. But we have an accomplished composer right here, and we're going to learn from him everything we can. I'm happy to introduce to you right now, Mr. Nathan Kelly. Hi, Nathan. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. We're glad to have you today. Hey, thank you. So I just told the people about you a little bit, but we still want to get to know you a little better. So would you please tell us where did you get your start as a musician and then tell us when you began to write, not as a professional, but just in the beginning? Well, I am a pianist and I was a kid just banging around, you know, before I, my feet could touch the floor. So I, <laughs> I guess I started when I was little and just banging around and it's continued to this day, <laughs> except my feet touch the floor, but I still bang around and, uh, just improvise. And I can't remember when I started, but I do remember in junior high, I was playing euphonium in the band. Uh, I played euphonium for like seven years and I remember writing, it's like on pencil, on hand-drawn, like college-ruled paper, drawing staves. And me and the low brass would do like stupid little football game chants or whatever. Like, like at the time, there was this Huggies commercial that was go like, I'm a big kid, look what I can do. I can wear big kid pants too. So I took that tune and arranged it for brass like when I was, I don't know, in sixth grade or something. And that was the big, oh, isn't that funny joke at the football game when the other band would play, we would play the Huggies theme. And our band director and all of us guys would just laugh because it was so funny. That's hilarious, yes. So, so I vividly remember photocopying like pen drawn notes and the staves were like you know as big as a pen it was, it was hard to read and doing it really i remember like going over it like with the xerox to make it darker and intenser in the tone and the sharpness so you could see it and then i discovered this program called encore because of that band director who was always trying to arrange his own things and he was largely responsible for me getting onto the software equipment where i could do arrangements you know, like the Pink Panther theme for our brass band. And then I just started staying up at all night till like two or three in the morning on this stupid encore program, which I thought looked amazing. And now I look at it and the slurs are all like falling off into the side of the margins. And, you know, there's like dynamics that, <laughs> that are just, you can't even see them. They're so tiny. That's and really, that's uh, really funny because yeah. who, who, first of all, who arranges a commercial and, and then it's the Huggies commercial. That's pretty funny. That's really funny. And, and then yeah. how, how old is that Encore? I vaguely remember that, but I think that was oh, like the 90s, wasn't it? 
Oh yeah, yeah. I'm revealing my age now. Yeah, I guess so. It was uh, it was really big. Like I remember, yeah. you know, in Texas where I, where I was, like everyone used it. It was before, you know, finale. I don't remember anyone ever talking about finale then. I remember encore. Yeah, that's true. Because it was because it was easy to use. You know, you just drag the stuff over, and it, I forget how it worked, but it was easy. So when did you know that you wanted to be a musician for the rest of your life? What did it for you? What was that moment? Uh, there wasn't ever a big revelation. I just, I just uh, always, I always loved film scores. And I, my grandparents, I have a ton of movies. And I would go spend the summer over there and watch Dr. Zhivago and Gaslight. And I just remember always watching tons of movies. And then my my parents loved to go to the movies or and collect them and you know so I was always watching them and I was always paying attention to the soundtrack and I always knew the names of composers for some reason and then I started reading books about them and next thing you know it's high school and we're having to pick a college and I started you know to piano seriously pretty late at like 16 which is very late the only other person I can think who did that was Henry Mancini who started pretty late around the same age and uh, I just applied to uh, do composition, and I took my little encore stuff and a bunch of stuff. And by some miracle, they let me into UNT in Denton, which is North Texas, uh, for your listeners, uh, which is a great school. And suddenly, I was exposed to like atonality and you know the real Stravinsky symphonies, really for the first time, because all I knew was like film scores. And I knew the names of them inside and out and loved movies and could name any film composer ever. And that's all I cared about. It's all I loved. So, so this I, is pretty interesting because yeah. you have a, already a pretty interesting story because you said you started late at the age of 16 in high school. Did I hear you right? Yeah. Is that accurate? And you, yeah. And you're already writing. You're arranging for your section at what was that that was junior high or, or grade school yeah that was just like a player in the band just like hey let's play this this will be a funny joke and we did like three blind mice when the football players would mess up like <laughs> you know really just yeah, just humor. just punny things yeah. you know and i remember trying to do chariots of fire like eight different versions till it sounded right i just remember it took a, wow. forever because it never sounded right and then, <laughs> and six eight, I didn't realize. I mean, I didn't realize three blind mice was in six eight. I kept putting it in three four. And then one day, I switched it to six eight. And my band director said, "You finally noticed." <laughs> this is this is great. So you're already giving us insights to your character because you wouldn't quit until you got this right. And you knew something wasn't quite together, and then you just kept digging until you found it. And so, where I'm trying to learn, where did this come from in your personality? Uh, well, in Texas, you know, you get up early so you can beat the heat to mow the lawn because it gets hot by like 10 or 11. And that kind of work ethic kind of runs through my family. And my stepdad would make me set my alarm before school so I could do all the chores outside. We had a huge backyard. So there's always been this hard work ethic all around. It just continued over into music somehow. But I do vividly remember my uh, stepdad uh, drug me into the van one day, and as we were going to do something, he said, you can play the piano after you finish your chores, son. 
Wow, that's great. <laughs> so it was, you know, music was never really a serious thing, but hard work was. And somewhere along the line, I switched professionally, quote unquote, to music. And for some reason, I'm making a living at it. So I'm pretty lucky, I'd say. And I don't know why, but it just happens. So will you please tell us uh, the road that you took to get to where you are today? I know that's a long road, um, kind of an open-ended question, but tell us some of the key points that stand out to you. Well, I got really lucky. Uh, my grandmother knew a preacher who wasn't her pastor, but it was someone nearby that she had known who was a piano tuner and also a composer and uh, he didn't really write, uh, music. He wrote hymns and he had several published. And by some strange luck, we needed a piano tuner and I had stopped piano lessons, you know, after like age six and I just gave it up because the only thing I wanted to play was Disney stuff. And my piano teacher was forcing me to do hand and exercises all day and I hated it. So I quit and this guy came over to tune the piano and he sat down and he just played, endless runs, endless scales, as fast as you could blink, and he was amazing. And I begged him for piano lessons, and he took me on, and he said, well, first, break all your bad habits that you picked up on your own. And that took a long time. And, you know, my sister had taken piano, and she had worked for years out of these theory books until she gradually went from playing a lot to theory books and that's all she did it was just these workbooks and she never played anymore and she quit and then the guy that i got did the opposite where uh we would start with a bunch of books and then we would go in the piano and it would all make sense anyway the long story short is he was a great teacher and uh, uh he taught me a ton of uh, beginning intermediate and advanced from books that he wrote himself he went to like eastman and michigan and brilliant guy, and he had written these books and did it in four-part harmony. And I learned from these books that um, he wrote. And I'm, it's funny, the other day I was asking about those books and if they'd ever been published. And he said, no, he'd forgotten about them, and I'm trying to get him to publish them because they really work. And it, it doesn't go through all the stuff like I've seen singers and guitarists do in college where they don't know anything about theory, but they can play their instrument really well. And they know how to read the notes for their instrument, like, you know, flute, but they can't read bass clef. And I see just them just struggle because they open up the first page of the Aldwell Schachter theory book, and it's Mozart piano sonata in C major doing endless scales. And you're supposed to say, this is how music works, and we don't hear it. We hear it all at once. It's like a 1-5-1, one, one, even though it has six chords. And immediately they're lost. And anyway, I was spared all that by this guy and uh very grateful so i had a, a a guy with a doctorate in our small little neighborhood and got hooked up and was doing tons of exercises and before you know it i couldn't stop this book that he had given me and fill out all the exercises and he would check them and i was his only student he had time to sit down all day saturday and look at the different ways of open closed harmony and why this is a 6-4-2 and what that means, because from the bass you count up two and you count up four and you count up six, put a dot down and those are the notes. And then he'd explain the keys and then we'd go to the piano and play it and then we'd open a hymn, maybe one that he wrote, and then we'd analyze it and talk about a different chord and substitutions. And 
Anyway, it was and, all very natural. And and this was all in high school for you. Is that true? It started around. Yes, I was like sixteen. I remember the number sixteen. And, and will you share this guy's name? Is it? Do you mind? What's his name? Yeah, his name is Dr. Charles Allen. He's still here. Okay. He and his wife and his sons and his daughters, and they all live on this big farm, and they're all very happy people. And you know, he's written some hymns. He never published those books that he wrote that I was taught out of. And he's just a very content man. And I just look at him thinking, you know, he's got immense knowledge, and he makes it so conversational and easy to learn. And here he is happy. And I know some musicians that beat their head against the wall trying to get their name on a program or be an arranger on this hot album and just killing themselves, starving, just for some small little morsel of credit. And uh, he has none of that, but he's happy. So puts it all in perspective. So that was in the beginning for you. And so I want to try to find another pivotal moment, maybe in the in the middle of your career or maybe the beginning of your career, because... In the introduction, I mentioned some of your, your work. I mean, mm-hmm. and it's a very long list. And again, I'll state some of the things. And it, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were at the Tony Awards. You did the 101 Dalmatians Tour. You did Oprah Winfrey's Color Purple. And you worked with Robin Williams and Mary J. Blige and Rod Stewart. And the list goes on and on. So before all of that happened, what, what, what was the first thing and how did that come about? Uh, the first thing, man, was just moving from small town in Texas to New York. That was step one. Um, and just putting it all on the line, not knowing anybody in this city, not having much money, and just hustling. And as everyone who moves and grows up in a small town or wants to do something major, like do entertainment or commercial music, you just have to put it all on the line and just go for it. And I wasn't getting anything from the circles that I knew. So I just had to pick up and move. So I just moved to New York city and didn't know anybody and just took what little money I had and, uh, did every job that I could. And for some reason was lucky, uh, to get off Broadway shows and Broadway shows and saved my money and ate dirt and lived in really horrible conditions. And, um, it was fun. Okay, and, so how did you get that yeah. first Broadway show? If you didn't know anyone when you walked into New York, how did that unfold for you? Well, actually, it's funny that you asked that because the truth is I, <laughs> I've i never told this anybody. I went down my phone list and I called every single person that I knew and asked them if they knew anyone in New York. <laughs> and I would, spend, I would spend hours talking to some people that I had never known and they would give me two or three names, and I would spend hours talking to them, trying to be their friend. And everyone has a recommendation, so from one you could get at least one other person or name. And maybe they're not there anymore, maybe they're not connected, maybe they died, maybe they don't like you for some reason or see you as a threat. It doesn't matter. You're just talking to someone and making a connection. And um, Man, I remember vividly having notebooks filled with names and phone books. I always keep notebooks and uh, just filling it up and then buying the next little one-subject notebook and carrying it around, calling everybody. And, man, if I, I would spend more hours calling than playing or doing money gigs or no money gigs. And then eventually the balance of the scales turned. But it's, it was tough. So who was the first person to help you? 
everyone helped in a different way. They would either recommend a place where you could live cheaply or maybe they knew a landlord or a guy's couch that you could stay on. Mm-hmm. I actually remember doing the Disney College program, moving to Orlando, didn't know where I was going to live, but I was driving there, calling everyone I could. And by the time I got to Orlando, I'd finally found a connection of a place of a guy who knew a friend of a friend of a friend who I could stay in this little one bedroom and do that. And it was all these little tests of courage that eventually gave me the faith to do New York. And then I wasn't scared that I was going to get mugged and you know right. killed and shot like everyone had told me and laughed about in high school before I moved. So that, anyway, I just did it and it, it worked out. So, All right. So I was really trying to find out your connection to Broadway from – from all of right. the people, yeah. Keep me keep me on point here. Yeah, is uh, it, I'm trying to find out who that person was, and okay, yeah. I'm I'm Mr. Tangent, so just keep me <laughs> just keep me going back. Uh, okay. Oh, well, I could I could list a bunch of names, but I remember Ben Cohn, who's still around, C O H N, just had a birthday today. Uh, who said, yeah, I think you could do a rehearsal pianist gig for, was it Alter Boys or some show like that at Dodger Stages? He had a friend of a friend, and then, boom, that was a paying gig. And then when you had one paying gig, then you could say, oh, I'm the pianist uh, at this show called Alter Boys. And they go, oh, yeah, Alter Boys. And then, you know, you're legit. So you can just use that to get the next one and the next right. one. Anyway, you just... I don't know, man. Everyone has the same story. You just got to be fearless, be outgoing, be humble, and be as good as you can and just keep your head down and keep working. And that applies for everything. I I went from playing to trying to write, which is not an easy transition. And every time it's like starting all over because all your friends are gone. You got to find a place to get a haircut. You got to find a place to live. And where's the cheapest pizza? It's tough, but that's what it's like to just, you know, go for your dreams and, you know, just be a musician and make it work. It's all about just building a bigger resume and um, it, it's just just networking. It's just yes, networking. that is so true. We At all, the end of the day. We often talk about the importance of relationship on, on this show. And uh, mm-hmm. again, it's been proven through your story. So I learned that recently you got to work on the Disney title Into the Woods. Is that accurate? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I didn't really have my name on it. It was my teacher who did the original show. Uh, Jonathan Tunick did the original show on Broadway. And, of course, they asked him to do the movie because it was taking the music from the little paper to the big paper, to, from the white paper to the yellow paper, whatever that joke is. And uh, he said, you know, they kept a lot of the same keys and there wasn't that much transition music to be, you know, added and created anew for the movie. So it wasn't that much of a strain. I think Sweeney Todd had more changes and more, um, you know, differences. They cut a lot of songs and condensed songs. Like, you know, the opening with Sweeney on the boat. I mean, that was drastically changed. They didn't really do that on Into the Woods. They kind of just kept it, you know, like the Les Mis movie. They just take every song, every bridge and they just moved it over and i think that's why it worked and why fan of the opera the movie didn't because they just took songs out and butchered it anyway that's my theory so what was your role in this in this film uh to support uh tunic he had you know he's a busy guy he does a lot of shows and just you know um whatever he needs 
it's a tough thing to like walk the line of helping and taking over. <laughs> and most of the time the, the trick is just to not talk a lot, which, you know, everyone loves to elbow in and everyone knows that. So, uh, you know, this applies to everything. You just want to be careful when someone gives you a shot, like playing a show or doing some arrangements for somebody, cause you never want to overshadow them, but you also want to support and help. And sometimes views don't frequently don't, uh, uh, mesh or someone thinks you're overreaching when you're not. So it's, it's tough. And, uh, in this case it was, it was not that tricky cause I'd known them a lot and the music was already set, uh, you know, back in the eighties or nineties when that was written. So anyway, there you go. Okay. So you actually lead us into a really good, a good point. Not a lot of people know what it's like to be able to write music for Hollywood. So can you kind of take us through the process of what it's like from beginning to end? What what does a work day look like, for example? Well, it depends on the kind of movie you're scoring. Are you talking about like scoring a movie of uh, any particular kind? Yeah. There's... Well, let's just use uh, let's just use um, a, a musical, for example. A musical. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Uh, so if you're scoring a musical, then you're writing the music. Is that what you mean? Then they're going to film it? Correct. Okay. Well, in that case, the music comes first and they usually ad lib it. So you would, um, need to do all the work ahead of time and not really done that. Um, I would never wish writing a musical on my worst enemy because it sounds painful and awful and horrible. Um, you know, you read these stories like Burt Bacharach, who's this amazing songwriter and he talks about you know, how he was so crushed writing uh, Promises, Promises, you know, which was going to Broadway. And he, he's a prolific writer. He wrote great tunes. And he was constantly, you know, asked to rewrite, cut, you know, cannibalize different songs because nothing ever worked. And they wanted to change the lyrics, change the mood, change the time. And he said, I'll never do it again. And then he went on a vacation for two weeks and he didn't come back for two years. So the musical is just, ugh, it's... I, I don't want to write one. And I, mean, I can I'm understand a, that because you're you're telling me that there is no script, but there's an idea maybe in the concept. You write the music and then they put the rest in around that. Is that true? Yeah. Musicals okay. are a very weird example because no one really films a musical. I mean, unless they have a lot of money. Like, I don't know. I heard Steven Spielberg is thinking about redirecting West Side Story, which sounds... okay. Awesome. I, okay, but. then let's change our example to something that's more common. Maybe you have an action movie, Fast and Furious 7. Okay. How, how does that work? Well, you better have a pretty darn good sample library if it's a huge, big movie like that because you're competing against guys like Hans Zimmer who have millions of dollars and an orchestra at their disposal for the demos, which the director is going to see and okay. hear the music for the first time. So step one is to get a good sample library. Step two is to have good writing chops. And then way down at the bottom is have talent. <laughs> and it sounds awful, but you just need to be able to compete with uh, the pros these days who have amazing samples. And you are you need to have more skills in logic and, and Cubase and uh, digital performer than you do writing with a pencil and paper. You just can't compete writing pencil and paper and finale and Sibelius. You just can't. And so many people that I know who are starting out like in high school or college and wanting to move to LA and do this 
don't know any sequencers and programmer pro- programming of any kind like that. And, uh, you, you just can't do it. You can't do it. It's 2015 and you're going to be given a movie and they're going to want a demo that's not finale playback. And if you're using finale or Sibelius, you're going to have to print out parts and hire musicians and you're going to have to know how to edit all the tracks anyway. And you better have a budget to pay them or your, they're your friends. The long story short is you need to be able to use samples, you know, stuff that you can just play in a keyboard, press your fingers down, and here comes string chords or brass chords or whatever. You know what I mean? Yes. But that's how you do film scoring today. And if you don't know a program like that, you're way behind. Forget Sibelius. Forget writing big band charts in finale. Forget writing orchestra sc- scores in Sibelius. You don't need it until later when you get a big – million dollar movie i see so when would those uh composition skills come into play well the skills are always needed but even more so are you know the stuff that you're offered right off the bat are not the best movies i mean let's face it and you gotta uh, start somewhere you gotta start somewhere and uh you're not going to have a budget and you're not going to have musicians at your disposal you're not going to have an orchestra you're not going to have a copyist and an orchestrator and uh you know, a Pro Tools engineer standing there, you're going to have to do it all inside the box in Logic or Digital Performer or Pro Tools and using MIDI. So get to know MIDI, read the books, read the stuff online, and just uh, get good at it. And the real trick is practice little scenes from movies that you like and study scores and listen to a lot of stuff. And the real trick is to know how many minutes you can write a day. That's the real test. Like try to get to... 30 seconds of music a day, and then a minute of music a day, and a minute and a half of music. Know exactly what you can do so that you can't overpromise or underperform. So how long does a project take? I, I know that's really – I know it changes from project to project, but mm-hmm. on average, is it, is it approximately two months, What six weeks? Um, I think John Williams is the only one that gets movies to score in terms of months, but he's the ex- exception to everything. Most movies are like two to four, maybe six weeks, you know, like Interstellar and uh, Gravity both had long gestation periods where they hired the composer way in advance of the post-production. But usually movies are like two weeks. Like you talk, you hear Alexander Desplat do interviews and he says, oh, yes, I was given two weeks to do Godzilla and it was it was fun. And, and he's saying at the same time, he also had four other movies to do and uh the the real secret to that kind of work ethic is to have a team of people. And if you can't do it all, you hire people to ghostwrite for you, and that's what everyone does. You just can't say no. Uh, their age, their agents won't let them. They'll just you know sign the deals, and if they don't want it, then the agents say, well, then you're not going to be a client. So they just have to take whatever they get, and they have to say yes, and they have to make it happen, and they just hire the crew till it. Is done. You know, Hans Zimmer has 200 people working for him, all paying like 2,000 bucks a month for rent to use a spot in his, uh, you know, at Remote Control Studios. So if he's supposed to do the next Iron Man or Batman movie and he has three weeks, he'll put 100 guys on it. If he has two weeks, he'll put 150 guys on it. If he has three days, he'll put 200. You know, you get my point. How, whatever it takes, he just hires the army till it's done. 
and you've heard the stories like Batman Begins. Uh, he collaborated with James Newton Howard, and they had hundreds of hours of like a razor blade on a cello to represent Joker's theme. Like you're competing at that level um, when you move to Hollywood with, you know, Hans Zimmer does one third of all Hollywood movies, thirty three percent. I notice of, his name quite often. Yeah, but he has a huge army to help, and most guys like Christopher Leonard's, it's just him or Christopher Young. It's just him, and, and they have their little teams, but Christopher Beck can't do the amount of movies as Hans Zimmer because just, you know, look yeah. at it. 200 people versus right. six. And I understand that. So do the people that help, do they get their names on the credits? Mm, after years, like you know, Klaus Bedell, who did Pirates, you know, you know, was around long enough. And then when he finally got Pirates, he said, oh, we'll, we'll put Klaus's name on it. And then the, the story is legendary. You know, they... Had some falling out, and now when you look on the Hans Zimmer website, you know he says, you know, all these people work for us on this list, except Klaus Bedell. He's never welcome back here again. Yeah. So, you know, that happens. But right. he's a great composer. I mean, now that I'm saying it out loud, I hope it's going on podcast and I didn't offend anybody. How much of your success has to do with your skill versus being a diligent worker? Well, I made that comment earlier, like skills way down at the bottom. It's all about you know production and how well you know sequencers i you know i'm trying to make a point it's really important to have those skills where you know how to work with a movie slow it down find the time right find the hit points and export export audio and um it's not to diminish the craft of composition it's very important but i remember samuel adler the guy who wrote the orchestration book genius guy comes in from Juilliard to uh, Texas to give a lecture. First thing out of his mouth was, it's a great time to be alive and be a musician. And we all sat up in our chair and thought, oh, this is going to be great. The next sentence he said to us was, and you're all way overqualified to do anything in music because, (laughs) you know, he's talking about like Hollywood and, and, you know, to be a composer these days, all you got to do is sequence it and orchestrate it. And the high stuff goes in the flutes and low stuff goes in the bass and, Boom, publish, self-publish, Amazon, done, sell. Uh, PayPal, you know, it's also easy to do it all yourself. You know, it's, everyone is doing it. And consequently, we have all these big movies coming out. A lot of times you don't even recognize the name because they're not big names because budgets are low and everyone can do it. And, you know, there's some way this young person who's never done any movie it's the movie that came out not long ago. It was a big movie, and he'd never done anything, and it was a big to-do. He had a big master class at ASCAP. Anyway, that happens a lot, and it's happening more and more because anyone can do it in their garage. I have a couple of things I want to ask you. And Now, I actually heard another one of your interviews, and I want you to share this Rod, oh, no. yeah, this Rod Stewart uh, story that you have uh, working with PBS. Roger Stewart was doing a PBS special and they were, you know, when they filmed the special of his Christmas CD, that means the CD is done and they're using the songs from the arrangements, the new arrangements on the PBS special, right? Well, when they create these arrangements on the CD, they don't really necessarily write all the stuff down. They get the players in, they have a loose guideline, they see chord symbols, lead sheets, and the players are just jamming. And the producers and the who powers that be decide which parts of whatever get in. And it's constantly a moving target. And at any given time, you could hear the same song and it'd be vastly different. Anyway, by the time it's all settled and done, 
they had this amalgam of things that had been written, had been improvised, and God knows what. And they needed to play this now with a live band for PBS to film it. So where are they going to get the charts? They're going to be zooming in on a guitar player trying to play the same licks that haven't been written down. And these are, you know, the best players in the world flying in, but you can't ask them to memorize all the licks of 16 songs. So anyway, long story short, I foster, they foster gave me the CD and said, here, I want every note written out. You have a week and I won't even tell you what the budget was, but it was like, oh God. So anyway, I didn't show up for a week because I was transcribing it all, and it was an amazing project. I was grateful to do it. I wanted to prove that I could do it. It was a big, you know, like, watch this. And it took forever. And I called every friend I had to, like, take a piece of a song because, like, Silent Night had nine guitars and 28 percussion things. It was a nightmare, and there's like two sliding guitars on Blue Christmas, and it's like, is the left one going up and the right ear going down? It was it was a nightmare, but it got done, and it was good, and when it finally came time for all the musicians to gather on the appointed day of the filming, we're all in the side room going through the charts, and Foster was just ready to just say, you're fired, <laughs> you know, as a half joke, half not, because he was really nervous about this test and i was determined that i would do it come in on budget and just have it all printed out taped and it was and when he asked the drummer how how are the parts the drummer who's an amazing amazing drummer said they're great and he never says that so uh i was very happy and foster said don't say that he'll want more money so, yeah. <laughs> as a joke as a joke yeah, but yeah, um, the drum price are hard for me personally i think drums are a little more the most challenging to write. Yeah, and, and he said, like, I want every uh, bluesy guitar fill. I want every swish of the cymbal. I want every kick of the drum. I want it all. I want to zoom in on the piano and see every little grace note because I don't want any of this to look like we're faking it, which they weren't. They were playing it, but they had to play it like the album because that's what they're marketing, you know? And so, anyway, that was the hardest thing I'd ever done. So, we're, we're- But... But close was a close second was having to transcribe a Looney Tunes cartoon. Man, I love Looney Tunes music, like Carl Stalling, Milt Franklin, all this stuff. Have you ever tried to transcribe one of those things? No, it's I a haven't. nightmare. <laughs> it is a nightmare, man. And if you go to like the Warner Brothers archives in L.A., you can see some of the original stuff, which I did one time. And he had like cue number eighteen, cue number seventeen. It's like two bars. Here's a trumpet fanfare at this tempo. And then they splice it together with the next piece. You know, it all sounds like one thing, but it's a little bit of cues that they stitched together. And I was like, my God, now now I know how he did it. I just thought he cranked out a long sheet of paper and wrote Bugs Bunny cartoon number 173 all at, all at dinner. Wow, but he doesn't. this is very interesting to learn this. Yeah. Well, I felt better because I was like, man, this, this is, I, I feel like a failure. I'll never be like Carl Stalling because I can't transcribe Carl Stalling. You know, how can you ever be the next Carl Stalling? You can't even transcribe it and you know at, at north texas where i was at um i there was a guy named paris rutherford who was always great at songwriting would analyze songs talk about you know, your melody uses the note e flat too much look here's e flat now you're back here again you're at bar three you're bar four you're bar five you get e flat even i'm bored and he was always pushing transcribe 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 and uh, I listened, and I did it, and I would listen to the prologue to Hook. Have you ever tried to transcribe that? Can you imagine? It's, it took forever. It took two weeks. 
And before you know it, prologue to hook. And you know what? I'm sitting here now. I haven't looked at it. I haven't heard it in years. I could probably go to the piano and get pretty close to what the chords were because something about pencil and paper goes to your brain in just like Mahler knew when he was transcribing, you know, whatever from whatever other composer like all like everybody did. You know, Mozart rearranged uh, Handel's Messiah because uh, he liked it and wanted to do his spin on it. I mean, if you compared Mozart's Messiah to Handel's, I mean, it's there's, there's lots of ways to improve your craft in different areas. But, okay, you want to know about film scoring? It's all about sequencers and your proficiency, your speed, your command of it. It is an instrument. Hans Zimmer said, Cubase is my instrument. Well, he didn't say Cubase. He said my, my computer, but he meant you know, logic or whatever you're using, Pro Tools, that is your instrument. And pretty soon, you know, you you stop playing your guitar and you're just focusing on composing because that is your, what, bread and butter, if that's what you wanted to do. So So scary, man, because I'm an instrumentalist and I just want to play and write actual music, actual notes and bring that to life. So it's, it's very, very interesting very yeah man yeah i mean we whenever you're around let's go get a beer and i'll just tell you all about um you know little stories that i have kept to myself when i'm feeling down like we all have the dark days of the soul i always think about stories like when thomas newman told me he went to yale and uh the his composition professor you know knowing who his father was alfred newman said my god you need to go back to beginning composition this your harmony is all over the place you don't know what you're doing what are you doing here and he felt like, you know, and and I, I always keep that in the back of my mind because that modal style that he has that's so wonderful and brilliant and iconic and now copied and um, emulated it so much, that American Beauty sound, that Shawshank Redemption sound, that Finding Nemo thing, I mean, uh, it's it's his. Um, it's copied, and it's its its own style. Like John Williams has a style. De Pla has a style. Thomas has a style. Everyone has a little style. Randy Newman has that Toy Story, everything's flying around style. I mean, and you know, everyone has a voice. And uh, a story to that effect is when when I was growing up, uh, I was trying to emulate everyone, and I, I kept saying, I don't have a voice. You know, if I was going to score a movie, how would I ever get noticed? Because I would sound like I'm ripping off John Williams. And someone said, Well, that's how everyone starts. That's right. That's right. You do have to start. There, imitating someone, and then you can, and then you can have your own voice. After doing this for for so long, I'm wondering if you have developed some type of a system to your writing. Yes. Tell us yes. about that real fast. You need three things. You need a team of people to help in case the going gets rough, the deadlines get tighter, or the work gets larger. You need to know your limitations, like I was saying earlier, so you can't underperform and you can't overperform. You can do what you say you can do because they will ask you, can you score this two-hour movie in three days? And I want it to sound like (laughs) E.T. And you say, yes. Well, they want 60 minutes of music for a 90-minute movie. Can you do that? Really? Have you tried? What experience have you had? Be honest with yourself. know what you can do and above all just keep practicing till till you can get fast you know and the third thing is uh just keep trying to get better in whatever style that you're doing now when you write do you start with melody or harmony first 
neither. I'm I'm a pianist, so I I play with left hand and right hand. So <laughs> I'm usually trying to sort scratch out a melody with the left hand mel- uh, harmony. So it's all together. Ah, so, I understand. Okay. So I, I I'm an improviser, and I make myself feel better thinking Gershwin was an improviser. Just read an autobiography about him. He apparently didn't really. Uh, he couldn't look at a score and hear the notes in his head, and he had to use his fingers to do all the talking. And that's kind of what I do, too. So tell us, uh, what are you working on now? Uh, what's the next thing we're going to see from you? And then let us know where we can f- get in contact with you. If you're hearing the snoring in the background, it's my engineer friend. We're sitting, <laughs> we're sitting right here. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> He's, I thought you were sitting. We're sitting right here trying to edit a uh, piano CD that uh, hopefully will not be as much of a nightmare in the next few hours because I found it. Uh, a way to go around that. This was recorded in uh, Amsterdam on GarageBand, and now we're trying to move to Pro Tools, and it took me like six hours to realize, oh, you export assets and then do export the project. I couldn't figure out how to put the waves back into it. Anyway, I finally got that. And uh, that's what we today and yesterday. And uh, till that, till that's done, I've finished some arrangements for some singers Hope they're going on the albums. Haven't heard and heard, haven't heard back, so I can't really tell you much about it. But I don't know. Sometimes you don't hear back, and it's a good thing. <laughs> Sometimes it's a bad thing. Um, so I don't know what happened with that. And I've got some theme park music to write. There's a theme park in Dubai. I don't know what it's called. I don't know what the ride is for, but I just know it's supposed to be dinosaur, and another one is supposed to be Arabian. So using those two words, I'll create. <laughs> some music and uh, hope that it fits and makes everyone happy and i'm sure there'll be lots of notes and revisions so right on we appreciate you nathan thanks a lot yeah man okay take care that's all for today's show guys thanks a lot for pressing play please go to itunes and rate the show really appreciate that we want to get the word out about the show and until next episode god bless you